that. So it's not easy to be in any position at this moment. So I'm sure that in, in the coming weeks we will have a clearer situation and everyone has to be a little bit patient, I think, in the first two, three weeks when everything will reopen to see where we're heading, how and how to make everyone happy. Today on Dirty Linen, we are hanging out in Melbourne town. We are talking to Andrea Pagani, the chef at Figo, a very cute pizza bar in Elwood in Melbourne. Andrea, welcome to Dirty Linen. Oh, thank you, Danny, and thank you to all the listeners. Yeah, well, I'm sure everyone is going to enjoy what you've got to say. Um, Tell us about Figo and what you try to offer there, at least when you're able to open. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, so Figo, uh, it's a sort of dialect term that uh, it means cool in Italian. Um, so we offer some uh, down-to-earth uh, kind of laid-back uh, honest food. So we try to make everything uh, at the venue and we offer pasta, pizza and gelato. And um, yeah, basically we are trying to offer uh Mm, the same kind of trattoria feeling, but um, maybe um, up to date, the um, uh, 2021 kind of style. Yeah, nice. I mean, what I love, because, you know, I'm not far from there and I often walk past in the early evenings, maybe walking with the dog or whatever. And I love this sort of the real street side aperitivi kind of feel that you guys have going on. You know, sometimes families are there or the parents might have a spritz or, you know, the dad's got a beer, the kids have got, you know, a little pizza and, you know, there's a bit of um, salumi around. It's just got a very welcoming kind of feel. Yeah, well, like, yeah, you, you actually highlighted a, a nice aspect of Figo, the one, the, one of those that I really, really love, which is, yeah, we have families with kids, of course, pizza, you know, it's a, it's a family unifier, but we also have couples, I still have this very old couple that I really love, um, and they're probably in the late 80s or 80s or something and they uh, come for dinner you know holding their hands and then when they leave the husband goes to you know to get the car and he comes back after around like 15 20 minutes but the wife is sitting there chatting with us while he, she waits for him and then they say hello to all the stuff so you know it's it's like, like a good local uh, that's what we try to offer to be, to be good local. So we try to remember each other, everyone's name. Uh, sometimes they call us and they say, ah, I want my usual pizza, which is not very easy because I don't know, there's, for instance, four Carolines and it's very hard to understand which Caroline is calling. So yeah, yeah, sure. Which is the one with, and you know, I can let it repeat, but yeah, you're right. Like that's the kind of feel that we want and we want, you know, that people can say informally hi or hello anytime they walk by. Yeah, beautiful. And how long have you guys been there? So we opened the first section uh, in, on the 2nd of June 2016. And by coincidence, it is the Italian National uh, Day. And it, it wasn't meant to be. It just happened that we got the, the legal license the day before. <laughs> uh, and we opened the second section because, as you said, uh, it was conceived at the, at the beginning to be a street food place. So there wasn't meant to be any pasta or main. But then people were asking and uh, the, ne- the, the, the venue next door became available. So we decided, uh, we decided to expand in 2017. Another coincidence, again, on the 2nd of June. So, yeah, it, it, it sounds like very redundantly Italian, but, yeah, I can <laughs> tr- tell you that it's just a coincidence. Love it. 
I mean, I think, you know, when I've sat in there um, enjoying the food and the hospitality, I felt that it's such a good example of how rich Melbourne is in food experiences because it's just a little uh, modest neighbourhood place, but the quality is is really there. The feeling is there. And, you know, as, you, as you've explained, you've got lots of loyal regulars but you, um, and people that you really look after in the community. I think, yeah, it's um, it's a really nice place. I love it. And, but it, you know, when you talk about those beautiful people, the 80-year-old couple, that just makes me wonder, what are they doing now well, through these long periods when Figo hasn't been able to look after them in the normal way? Yeah, true. Like, luckily, that specific guy still comes for takeaway, uh, which is great. You know, it's it's the it's the um, stereotype of the local customer who you know gives back is not just looked after by us during opening times, but also looks after us in uh, in in critical times. So yeah. that's what we that, that's what that's what's happening. You know, like uh, we we can we can tell there's a lot of people are. Uh, exhausted, but it, the good thing is that it's like our mission is. I love when people come in, come in, and they're grumpy. I love it because our mission is in that in one hour and a half, they need to get out, say hello, a goodbye to everyone, and say, "Oh, thanks, the food was great." That's our goal, and you know, in this kind of times, everything is so even more critical because we don't have 90 minutes. We have 90 seconds to do that. So, and we try to, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, you know, uh, we're doing our best to let's get out of this as soon as, and in the best way we can. And so how do you do that, Andrea, in 90 seconds? Like, tell me about, you know, your strategies for passing over some good feeling in that short period. Oh, it's a secret. Uh, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. No, no, basically, uh, so sometimes it works on its own because people just enjoy the, you know, the Italian theater. So we, you know, because in the kitchen, everyone is more or less Italian. It, we, it, again, it's a coincidence because I don't really mind. I, I love having, you know, we have Melbourne and it's fair to have, even though sometimes customers, they do complain and I get so crossed. <laughs> I had one customer one time calling and complained that the person on the phone wasn't Italian. I said, well, well <laughs> what can I, I can't, you know, like, I don't know, it's counter discrimination on the other side. But anyway, um, so sometimes they enjoy the live performance of Italian. They all, they always think that uh, we are fighting because just, just because we are loud, but we're not. Uh, or otherwise, we try, you know, to tell jokes, or sometimes we accidentally, you know, heard or misspelled the name. So sometimes a Robert comes and pick up the pizza, and on the docket it says Rupert. You know, so yeah, you know, anyway, make as long as it works, it makes them laugh. That's fine. Love it. Um, so tell us about this difficult period. You know, it's a year and a half now of in and out of lockdown, and some of these lockdowns have been very long. What's it been like for you guys? How have you navigated the pandemic? Uh, well, yeah. Um, how many days do I have to answer this? <laughs> you got as long <laughs> as you want. <laughs> so, but of course. Uh, the most obvious and blatant um, element is the lack of staff because specifically for um, a pizzeria, but I, I'm sure it happens also for other uh, specific cuisines, you know, Chinese, uh, Japanese, Indians, any kind of cuisine, but um, getting uh, staff that are very capable to do pizza is not easy at all. 
and because there there's not be there hasn't been any turnover and lots of guys left Melbourne to go to other COVID free states even within Australia. So we we had to um, work very hard with trying, of course, to make everyone feeling comfortable, not just because of the COVID, but you know it's hard for everyone and most of the people that works for, with us, who work with us they have no family here. So we needed not to be just an employer, but we needed to be the family as well because it's you know yeah. very challenging in this time so we try to keep the level as um, comfortable as we could for them and uh, you know we navigated pretty well i have to say i can't complain at all the stuff it seems to me unless something changes the last couple of hours love to be with us we love to have to, de- to have them on uh, on board and yeah it's been that, that's the of course the first the first big problem the second problem i would say that as as weird as it sounds when you reopen after all this period of being uh closed it, it looks like i don't know uh, if you if you break your leg and you start walking the first day that you start walking you actually fall on the floor straight away because you're not trained anymore so the first two tables that walk in and uh, oh my god I have to bring the menu and the drinks oh, uh, how do I, how do I do this you know you, you kind of forgot everything and uh, so the first couple of days are very shocking because you have lots of people coming and you are not trained to do that like because you for two or three months you haven't done that it's you know I mean I guess at least as diners, I think they've also forgotten how to be outside of the house. So I suppose it's like, in a way, everybody has to relearn how to be together um, at the same time. True. Well, yeah, especially in these Zoom years, it would be hard for everyone to wear like a, a decent match between top and pants, you know, because <laughs> because maybe you might, you know, forgot to wear pants and you go out in your pyjama. It might happen, I think. I think so. Well, I, I think I'm... I'm partly very excited to get properly dressed and to, you know, head out to restaurants. But I remember from last year, there is this very, it's quite a challenging transition from the the lockdown life to the going back out life. And I think, uh, I suppose you just hope that, you know, the capacity restrictions map on to people's, you know, willingness or ability to actually get themselves out there and to get back to restaurants, back onto public transport, you know, back into Ubers and taxis, whatever it is. Um, but I think, yeah, it's, it's challenging for, it's definitely challenging for hospitality staff, but also challenging for the people that are going to be coming into the restaurants. <laughs> That's very true. But yeah, and um, but, but I really hope that everyone will enjoy how good the little things are that's the main thing you know again it's like when you break your leg when you start walking again you realize how good it is to wake up in the middle of the night and you need to go to the toilet and you can't go in two minutes or two seconds <laughs> while when you break it you know leg is broken you need to kind of wake up a couple of minutes in advance but you know and then you appreciate how good it is to be able to go to the toilet in 10 seconds so I hope that people will appreciate the little things when we reopen. I, I mean, your analogy of the broken leg seems very heartfelt. I have to ask you, have you ever broken your leg? Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. It makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Right. So you speak from experience. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally, definitely. Yeah. And the toilet thing is was the most challenging. 
Okay, well, you've got a very good analogy. I guess, you know, the the big difference opening up this time, and we'll see how it plays out in Sydney over the next few weeks, but the big difference is the vaccination situation. How are you feeling about that from the point of view of, you know, managing uh, a workforce, but also customers? Yeah, that's the challenging thing. Uh, so, um, regardless of the position, uh, uh, FYI, I'm fully vaccinated, so is my family and everyone, and all the staff as well is uh, following the rules. So by the next week, everyone will have the first dose at least booked. But ours, all ours employer, uh, they already had the first uh, jab done, which is great. Someone already too. Uh, the challenges will be uh, from a sort of legal point of view. I always imagine this situation. Okay, hospitality table of ten. Uh, nine people are fully vaccinated and one is not. <laughs> Question is, what do I do? You know, what do I do? Do I say to the tenth person, "Sorry, you can't sit in," but they already been mingling with the other nine? You know, like legally, do I have the authority to say, "No, you can't come"? That, that, that needs to be, I think, still clarifying. And I'm not, you know, of course, you know, complaining with anything and anyone because sometimes we forget that when we use the word unprecedented, that now it becomes like, you know, uh, in Italian we say something is like puzzling when it goes everywhere and loses its, its original meaning. But it really is. So it's not easy to be in any position at this moment. So I'm sure that in, in the coming weeks we will have a clearer situation and everyone has to be a little bit patient, I think, in the first two, three weeks when everything will reopen to see where we're heading, how, and how to make everyone happy. Mm, I mean, I, I think you're right. And hopefully everybody will be patient, but hopefully everybody will also be vaccinated who's trying to come and they won't make it difficult for hospitality staff. Because I think the rules are pretty clear, really. It's like if they're not vaccinated, they're not allowed to be there. But of course, that may not help you have the conversation with that table of 10. Um but yeah, you just have to hope that when a group of 10 is deciding to go out together, that they will at least do some checking like, hey, so everyone's vaccinated, right? Like we're not going to, we're not going to, yeah, this isn't going to go pear-shaped at any point. You really hope that um, that it's there's a bit of teamwork in this situation and, and customers don't put restaurants in difficult positions. Yes, that's all. Well, you know, like uh, my position is clear because I grew up with my nonno and my nonno was like uh, the tick boxes lover. So he always taught me like everywhere you go, you need to make sure that you, you can do what you're doing because he was so scared of getting told off by the authority in that context. You know, it might be the teacher, it might be the cop, it might be the boss, whatever. So he taught me this kind of you, you need to be ready and prepared approach. You know, I can't expect that all the other five billion people in this planet had my nonno because it would be a very powerful nonno. But I'm, I really, I really want to hope that everyone will try to walk in the other person's shoes for at least the first weeks, you know, and be patient. If you don't want to get vaccinated, I respect that. Maybe don't book a restaurant. And I'm sure that maybe in the coming, you know, in the next year, things are going to be, you know, a little bit smoother for everyone. Yeah, I think that's true. It's not going to ever be as difficult as it is in the very first weeks. Yeah, yeah. But, and I'm also, I don't want to believe that in the next months, you know, the progress will go ahead. So we will have like hopefully a treatment or whatever it is that makes everyone's life um, easier and without the, you know, the painful step of being the controller. Because I, you know, it's not a, very good situation for me either to say to someone, sorry, you can't come in. 
it, you know. Now, I just want to backtrack a little bit. Was the saying you were talking about with unprecedented, was that to do with parsley? <laughs> no, because, yes, yes. So in Italy. So can you explain yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So in Italy, uh, uh, essere come il prezzemolo, to be like parsley, uh, it means both uh, to be everywhere because we use parsley. Uh, but also it means that because you're everywhere, you actually lose your value. So no one says, oh, you can really taste the parsley here because it's everywhere, you know? So so it was, so it was the word unprecedented. It's, you know, some of the terminology that has been used in these pandemic years, uh, very important words. Unfortunately, in my opinion, lost the grip because they're of the overusage. So one is unprecedented and people sometimes use it as you're saying, yeah, I have a coffee. But unprecedented means that there was nothing like that before. (laughs) Yeah, it's such a good expression. I love it. Um, So let's go back to Italy, Andrea. Tell me about your early life with the place of food in it. Um, And yeah, maybe some more about your beautiful nono. Yeah, okay. So yeah, no, no, my nonno was the best person on this planet with all the respect to the other billion people on this planet. so I'm, I come from Tuscany, from the only Tuscan city which is famous for nothing, which is Livorno. Um, and uh, I've done a lot of different things in my life, but in terms of hospitality, I've worked in a restaurant uh, near the port, and we also opened a little restaurant in uh, Fish Market, in uh, still in Livorno. Um, we founded an association that cooperated with um, Slow Food, and we went uh, to all the food festival around Italy, also the big important one, Italy. Sorry, uh, the Salon del Gusto, it's called. It's uh, every two years. And uh, we went to like a f- fish soup festival all, all around Italy to make competition with other local fish soups and this and that. So I really uh, had like a strong um, education in terms of local food and how, how good it is, you know, that a food is not just something that you put in your mouth, but it's, it's, it's a book that you're reading with your mouth, uh, because it tells a lot about the culture and the personality of the people who live there, my opinion. Yeah. And, um, and then I came here in, um, uh, so yeah, where I come from, it's a seafood place basically. And, um, so we, we, we eat a lot of, uh, and I, to be honest, I have to tell you a secret. I really don't like the fish soup from my hometown. But the, really? I don't like it. It's too strong to me. I don't like it. <laughs> but yeah. Like too many, too much shellfish or what? No, the- no, shellfish a lot. Uh, but, but, but I don't like uh, strong uh, tomato sauces in fish too much. So I like clean and neat. Uh, like a bula best for me is way better, but I can't say that because I couldn't say that at the time because otherwise, uh, you know, scandal. Yeah, my reliability will go, you know, down the drain. Uh, <laughs> and that, okay. And, uh, yeah, and then I came here in 2013, uh, got in, getting a sponsor with the old 457 in a cafe in Hawthorne. Uh, got my PI in 2016 opening Figo and starting a PhD in 2017, which I finished the PhD three months ago. Ah, oh, tell me, that's congratulations. What's the PhD in? Uh, it's in literary studies. Uh, yeah, I was researching on uh, the guy who wrote uh, Pinocchio, but not on Pinocchio specifically, on other texts. 
Oh, so tell us more about that. Like, what what were you, what were you studying? Uh, yeah, I was studying. I was trying to um, uh, understanding how the, the so this guy's name is Carlo Collodi, just to you know gives things a name, and he also wrote not only Pinocchio but also a lot of books for primary school in the years where Italy was just just reached the unification. So we're talking about end of nineteenth century. And because in this later, you know, everyone, most of people have seen the cartoon, the Disney cartoon of Pinocchio, but not read the book. And there's a big difference. So while uh, it seems that Pinocchio is the personification of the middle class, you know, you work hard, you get awarded and you can get a good, wealthy life. Uh, actually, like the, you know, contemporary reading of the book, they are actually questioning it and say like, mm, it's not exactly like that. And um, these things hasn't invested yet the school books, and that's what I'm claiming. I'm claiming that also in his school books, which were approved by Thailand government, he was actually delivering something that wasn't totally supporting the middle class. So, I mean, I grew up where... I grew up going to Italian restaurants every second Friday night with my family. And one of the restaurants we went to was called Pinocchio and it was on Turek Road in South Yarra. The other one was a, was next door and it was called Tamani. Normally we went to Tamani, but sometimes we went to Pinocchio and they had murals along the wall of the story of Pinocchio. So that's where I really learned it. It really soaked into my bones. And to me, the story was always a morality tale about lying. It was always that if you told a lie, it would be visible externally and and you would be caught. Um, so, but this doesn't sound like the main point of the story to you. No, no, but the book is not like, the, it doesn't like that often in the book. Yeah, the, the, the nose grows when he lies, but, you know, there's not much attention from the author on the lying thing. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it happens. But, you know, also because you, you need to understand that that book wasn't originally a book, was a, a episode it's it's like a TV series now, you know. It was an episode on a bag mag- on a magazine, and sometimes it was the, the writer was so lazy that you know months uh, pass bef- between episode an episode and the other, and um, and it was actually conceived uh, the f- the original version ended with uh, Pinocchio uh, uh, there uh, dying uh, by hang. Oh my goodness! Yeah, which is pretty, you know, <laughs> intense for a children uh, magazine. Uh, but then after that, the the children ri- uh, readers started writing to the magazine. Now oh, we want Pinocchio, we want Pinocchio. And the guy started from you know end of season one and the beginning of season two is like Jon Snow in the Game of Thrones. You know, the beginning of season two, boop, he opens his eyes and he's still alive. Right. Um, yeah. Wow. So, yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. I've actually been, I, I, the story crossed my mind recently when we're talking about all the um, the anti-corruption commissions and you just, I was thinking, wouldn't it be great to have an anti-corruption commission for politicians where it was as simple as you could just see someone's nose grow if they lied? Oh, that would be great. Look, like uh, uh, even if you d- didn't put many at- much attention on that, I think that invention was brilliant because imagine how beautiful the world would be with uh, Well, the only thing is that really you needed to put like glasses very far away from uh, the table because, you know, otherwise <laughs> I think there, were, there, there wouldn't be any person on this planet with a short nose. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Even Even you when you pretend to remember Caroline's pizza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, two of them, they like anchovies. So I always play the anchovy card. 
Okay, right. Yeah, love it. Um, so, Andrea, that's so interesting that you not only run a restaurant, but you're also, you know, a literary scholar. How do you sort of balance those two aspects of your of your life, or do they easily go together for you? Well, uh, first of all, I'm super lucky to have not only uh, two fantastic business partners, uh, Valeria and Sally, and they own also Las Volta in Hampton and uh, Ganzo in Richmond, and they make my life easier because, you know, they're always there supporting me. And also the staff, everyone working there, like from the, you know, uh, from the dish helper to the, the, the floor manager, they're all the same to me. And they they make my life easier because in that, ca- in that way I can be there always 24-7 for resolving problems. But physically, I can limit uh, to the weekend uh, or to the, you know, when someone is sick or missing. Also because one and a half year ago, I had my first son. So life is busy. It's a bit busy at the moment. Mm, yeah. So in a, in a way, did it work out? okay for you that you could get your PhD finished while Melbourne's been in and out of lockdown? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yes. I, I have to say yes also because, you know, like uh, there, there wasn't the extreme need to be there every night because of the lockdown. So like the restaurant didn't need too much, uh, not attention, but staff. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, in, in, uh, in a paradoxical way, uh, the lockdown didn't make it harder, let's put it this way. Yeah, right. So you said you've done a lot of different things in your life and now we've discovered your um, your studies, your PhD. Is there anything else we need to know about? Uh, I worked in the um, video production and cinema when I was in Italy before working in the restaurant. Ah. Um, yeah, as a video editor, as a video maker for local theatres, for theatre shows to create video backgrounds and uh, in cinema to, you know, editor assistant uh, but then I, my life was very unhealthy because I was sitting in front of the computer editing videos until like five in the morning. And then I decided that probably I needed a change. And um, yeah, so basically, um, yeah, I think, yeah, apart from some journalism, some radio experiences as well, uh, um, I think I said it all. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Great. So as we reopen and, you know, things get hopefully a bit more back to normal, what do you think are going to be the big issues? And I suppose, you know, just to prompt you, (laughs) one thing I'm thinking about is international staff. And you you mentioned how important it is to have people who understand a bit about pizza and Italian food. I mean, how important is it to Figo that you are able to have staff coming from Italy? Well, it's important in um, in many uh, from many uh, perspectives. Because the first of all, it's the you know, mm, like the, the, the really the, the skill of not only knowing how to make you know a dough or make a pizza, which you know it, it, it's very important, but it can be built on anyone coming from any country of this world. Um, it's more the cultural background that sometimes is required because what, what, what I want or what we want when people come into Figo is that for an hour and a half, they don't just eat Italian food, but they are in Italy for a while. So even the staff that we have at the moment on the floor who are not Italian, they started to behave like Italians at the moment. Uh, you know, because that, 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 that's the whole experience. You know, um, I think everyone has 
kind of silent expectation when you go to a certain restaurant. Uh, I don't know. If I'm going to a Russian restaurant, I'm not expecting waiters to come and hug me and, and talk in, South, in, in Spanish. You know what I mean? Uh, even if it's not crucial, because I'm not going for that, but it's kind of uh, um, a silent expectation, as I said. So, yeah, I think that the... Um, uh, the problem is cultural and also, um, how can I say, that it's the secondary meaning of not having stuff is that the world is closed to us. And that's the, you know, people now, also the staff who are here, they start to suffer a little bit because it's almost two years that they haven't seen their families. And, uh, you know, this situation needs to somehow come to an end. Yeah. Well, it's, it's so difficult, isn't it? I mean, you've got permanent residency, haven't you? Yes. Yeah. So for, for you and for me, like we can go overseas to visit family or, you know, soon we'll be able to. But as far as we know so far, in terms of the announcements from the federal government, people who are on visas don't have that same, well, they, they won't soon have that ability to travel overseas and come back without, you know, the hotel quarantine. It's, it's really the visa holders at the moment, the ones that stayed, now they're sort of trapped. Ah, I completely agree with that. And I find it unfair, as I found unfair when last year they didn't have any access to any kind of financial support other than rent reduction. And luckily this year they can, they could have access to and can to the disaster payment. Um, you know, like the, the human beings before, and I understand, and I understand, of course, all the concerns and the fact that, you know, because Australia is an island, there's, you know, it's a little less difficult to, um, adopt certain restrictions uh, with the rest of the world. You know, in Italy, it's not easy to close Italy because there's a bazillion countries uh, just next. Um, but I don't know, maybe they start to consider people as people and the vaccination as a requirement regardless of the visa. I don't think the vaccine uh, it works better or worse if you have a permanent residency or another I don't, I don't think medical studies have outlined that uh, according to the visa status. That it yeah, I don't think so either. I, yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. If, if you're able to quarantine at home and if you're vaccinated, it shouldn't make any difference what passport you've got. Oh, I completely agree. Look, of course, if you live in a building with uh, 45,000 apartments, uh, or you share your house with uh, 15 people, maybe you should organized and get organized with, uh, you know, quarantine facilities and this and that. But if someone is happy to pay for that and they actually need, you know, I mean, we, we had many experience of staff who needed to go because of something happened in, 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 in Italy. In, you know, in two years' time, when you're here and you're in your 30s, you might have your parents who are in the 70s or you might have nonni in the 90s. You know, something can happen. And you need to be able with all the safe, the possible safety measurements to come and go. You need to, especially now that vaccines are, are, are available. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, the person, I, I take your point that if you live in a large household or if you live in an apartment building where it might be easier for transmission to occur, yeah, perhaps you should consider staying elsewhere while you're quarantining. But that could just as easily be an Australian as anybody else who's in that position. Exactly. So it, yeah, it's it's. I really hope that changes quickly because I know for you know by definition, people who are here from overseas have got loved ones that um, they very well may want to see in another country. So it just to me, it doesn't make sense that they're they're being held here. 
Oh, look, uh, I, I, I think it's more urgent, a problem like that, rather than, uh, you know, railing for freedom of choice, uh, vaccine or no vaccine. I think that some issues are even more important, and sometimes we don't consider enough uh, what other people might go through. And I think the issue of someone who cannot see the loved ones for two years is becoming, you know, more unbearable than uh, should I get the vaccine or not, but I'm scared and all the other reasons that I don't want to delve in because it's another discussion. But, you know, um, sometimes we need to step back and think, okay, what are other people uh, feeling now? Like, you know, what other situation worse than mine are out there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, Andrea, so you, hopefully you'll be open in a couple of weeks and I can come down for some food. What will you feed me? Uh, well, um, your name is not Caroline, so I cannot feed you anything without sure. <laughs> um, look, a figo, like the, um, the, the dish that I love the most, of course, it's the meatball because that's my nonna's recipe. And uh, I'm not saying because it sounds like, oh, yeah, that's so stereotypical. It really is. Like, it really is the way that my nonna was used to make meatballs. Um, and uh, she, because she always, um, she's always been very careful about money spending. So uh, <clears throat> in order to have less meat, but to feed more people, she always mixed in equal parts meat and ricotta cheese. And so the meatballs were coming very, very fluffy and she always refused to put the, you know, Italians, they put the bread, the soaked bread in the meatballs, which makes it very cubby, uh, while in that way they become like nice and fluffy. And, uh, yeah, and, and it's not just for me, it's, it, you know, it's, it's a picture of my nonna, basically. So I will feed you meatball for sure. And then you need to choose either a pasta or a pizza. Mm, okay. It's, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It sounds so good. And um, and maybe a spritz as well to start. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's for granted. Oh, Andrea, well, it's, look, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Um, really interesting to hear all the different things that have brought you to this point in your life. Um, good luck with the next couple of weeks of, you know, getting pizzas out the door but planning to reopen and welcome customers into the door it's uh yeah really i feel like we we're getting there and before we know it uh, melbourne will be back to life yes that will be great hopefully we appreciate the small things and thank you danny for all the things that you've done especially in those couple of years for every one of us visa holders that's like incredibly outstanding and i'm not trying to be you know um how do you say in english when you try to get people goodwill i'm i'm being very honest in saying that we're really no, thank really, you. Really, really thankful well, well i mean what is melbourne without everyone from you know all around the place so yeah for me it's um yeah it's obvious like we just need to look after everybody and be a very welcoming city i feel like that's what we are all about um all right i'll, I'll see you for a spritz before too long andrea thank you perfecto ciao danny this is dirty linen and i'm danny valent we air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.